Hi everyone, I'm Suzanne Delahunty and this is Freedom Hunters, a podcast about inspiring people who have made fascinating career changes and found freedom in their dream career. We talk about their journeys, how they changed career, the challenges they faced along the way and what success means for them now that they're doing what they love. Georgia Gwynne Gruber is larger than life. When you meet her, it's hard not to get caught up in her enthusiasm and love of life. In this episode, Georgia shares her career story, and I was blown away by her resilience, positivity, and determination. Georgia grew up in Wales and studied law at Oxford University. However, shortly after graduating, she was charged with a minor drug offence that resulted in her spending six months in prison. She spoke to me about that experience, the impact it had, and how it spurred her on to take her life in a wholly free-spirited direction. From producing and presenting travel programs for television, to starting a rap group and touring the world, and finally landing in LA, where her love of writing led her to write and produce a number of TV and film productions. After 10 years in the film and TV industry in LA, she has recently moved back to Wales with her husband Jay Mackay Gruber, a screenwriter and director whose films include The Butterfly Effect, starring Ashton Kutcher. The two are currently filming in North Wales with big plans for establishing film and TV production infrastructure in that part of the country. What I took away from my chat with Georgia is the importance of gratitude, connection with others and always, always write down your goals and dreams because they probably will come true. Strap yourselves in everyone for an adrenaline fueled episode with Georgia Gwyn Gruber. Enjoy. Hey, Georgia, welcome to Freedom Hunters. Thank you. Very excited. I love the word Freedom Hunters. <laughs> Definitely describes a little bit of my life. Can't wait to get into it. But before we do, I just want to talk a little bit about where you grew up and what kind of kid you were when you were little. So um, I grew up in a tiny little coastal town in Penarth, called Penarth, outside of Cardiff in Wales. I'm the eldest of originally four, now six children, but four with my parents and we're all two years apart, very close siblings. I kind of was like surrogate mum. Apparently, um, my mother says having four children was easy because I'd always just entertain them. I think she's blanked out all of the hardships. Now I'm a mother. I think she's just full of shit. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it's probably terrible. Uh, very, very um, happy childhood, to be honest with you. It's a lot of outdoor stuff, lots of climbing trees, going down to creating worlds in, in the woods and, um, you know, being by the beach and... Um, yeah, huge amount of outdoor stuff and nature and um, world building in my head. I used to do a lot of plays, um, write things on weekends, perform them in the afternoon. Started filming quite early on one of those early video cameras. So I used to rally around all my brothers and sisters and 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 uh, make them do ridiculous things in outrageous outfits and film them and you know <laughs> shows, shows for family and friends regularly. A lot of music, a lot of sport, um, just really, really happy times. I was very, very blessed. And, and what did you want to be when you grew up? Well, funnily enough, about two, two and a half months ago, my, I was clearing out some, some of my stuff from my mother's house and I found a book and it was a book I'd written when I was like 11, nine or 11 or something. Oh, my God, it's so funny when you see that stuff. Oh, no, it was so freaky. And it actually said, when I grow up, I'm going to later on, when I'm much older, I'm going to be a writer. And that's what I do now, which is so weird. And it said, I also want to produce. Um, oh, yeah, this was the funny thing. 
I want to produce um, television and films, but I want, but, but I'm going to do it right then, so that I can star in all the roles. Well, I've never really, I never really followed the acting path. It just wasn't something I was particularly attracted to later on. Even though I acted quite a lot when I was younger, it just once I got to university, I didn't, I wasn't really interested in it. But it's interesting that the writing producing part came full circle way later in my life because I had no idea that I'd written that down, actually written it down on paper back then. Yeah, I think there's a power of writing stuff down, I reckon, even at 11 years old. (laughs) Totally, totally, yeah. The vision board before the vision board was born. When it came to choosing your university and what you wanted to study, what did you choose back then? So I was always very, um, very inclined towards English poetry. I studied a lot of poetry and I used to write a lot of plays and songs and you know, always writing was the thing. But because my A-levels were a mixed batch, they were like chemistry, classics and English, um, I ended up applying for a law degree, not because I particularly wanted to study law or particularly wanted to be a lawyer. It just seemed like a good degree to go for because I really didn't have, you know, it was like such a mixed bag of A-levels. I was also my father um, he wasn't a lawyer when I was born, but he became a lawyer later on. And, you know, he would just impress upon me, look, it's a really good career choice. It's a really good degree to have, um, whether you pursue it or not. I mean, he was really pushing me to be a lawyer, but my mum was like, you know, at least at least you then have some choice. Um, so I ended up studying law. And I, um, at the time, I wasn't one of the, I, w- I wouldn't say I was one of the girls in school getting the real top grades, but I, as a joke, I applied to Oxford because <laughs> I thought that if I applied to Oxford, the other universities like Manchester, which is the only place I wanted to be in the whole universe at that point, because this is like the, you know, this is the era when the Hacienda was roaring. So I was like, I want to go to Manchester and do nothing for three years and just party. So I thought if I apply to Oxford, I'll look intelligent. Maybe I'll get into Manchester. Well, of course, I would end up going for an interview to Oxford. And because I didn't really care about getting in, I was so totally relaxed and obviously opposite to anyone they normally interview there that I ended up getting offered a place. And at that point, no one in my school had ever been to Oxford. So then the pressure was on. You've got to get the grades and you've got to go. You know, even my, my Welsh, you know, my Guy and de Key, as we call granny and grandpa in South Wales, they were like, you know, you've got to, you've got to go. It's going to be the first person in the family to go to Oxbridge. So there was a lot of pressure. And um, I remember being really sick before my A-levels because there was pressure for sure. And um, But I got them and I ended up studying law at Oxford. And I tried to drop out after a year and do English instead. But for whatever reason, the law tutors encouraged me to stick with it. And I did. And um, I graduated with a um, a 2-1 in law at the age of 20 with a BA and an MA from, you know, Oxford University. So that's what happened. Wow. <laughs> Did, so there was never any time where you thought, yeah, I'm going to give it a try, but, uh, being a lawyer? Well, at the time when I was at college, we used to get, well, we all were a little headhunted, about 19 years old, second year, all the law firms from London would come down and kind of interview you, stake you out. I did actually get headhunted quite young. Um, by a very prestigious law firm and we were all offered you know really good starting salaries to do our pupillage or if we were going on to be um, uh, barristers you'd do one route and if you're going to go for a solicitor and I thought about doing music law but my legal career kind of got nipped in the bud by the rave scene because um, in my final year at Oxford just after I got my, my you know just after I finished my exams it was it was the free party scene around Oxford where you get 30,000 
ravers in a field dancing for four days, you know, and um, I decided to start dabbling with recreational drugs. And um, I ended up getting caught with um, a small amount, but it's 10 students we'd all chipped in for, for a night out on the weekend, but it was all in my room. And I got caught and I actually ended up going through the most horrendous year uh, where I was tried and convicted um, and sentenced to nine months in prison at the age of 21. Oh and my so God. I turned 22 in jail. So, yes, my legal career definitely took a turn, a very big twist, especially as I got my first in criminology and then suddenly I was behind bars actually doing grassroots criminology from the other side of the fence. So there I was with a BA and an MA under my belt at 20 years old. And uh, it wasn't even six months later, I um, was arrested, charged, and then it made national headlines because my, my father uh, was a lawyer. They decided to call him a judge. And then they decided to link me, by, the press linked me, to the death of an Oxford student I neither knew nor dealt any drugs. I wasn't a drug dealer. Ten of us just chipped in £10 to go out for the weekend. Um, and, and suddenly this case blew up in the press. And my first court hearing at a magistrate's court had, you know, the Daily Mail, Daily Express, all of them jumping on my windscreen and ripping me out of the car. And I had a polo neck jumper up to here and a hat pulled down and dark glasses. And it was horrific. And um, every time I went to court, it was like that. So magistrate's court felt it was too big a case for them to handle. So it ended up going to Crown Court. And as soon as it went to the Crown, it was bigger sentencing power. And now they were making a scapegoat sentence out of this small case. And because the, the newspapers had connected me to a death, that was the sensational story. Judge's daughter linked to death of Oxford students. So it ran for a year. I got nine months. And, um, you know, it was horrific. It was yeah. absolutely my whole life turned upside down. So the what? rug pulled from under me. And... Um, but it was the most amazing thing that I could possibly, could possibly, possibly have happened to me. Yeah, well, yeah, I want to get into that. But what, what goes through your head when you, when you learn that you're going to prison? Everybody at that point, including my representation, my solicitor, my barrister, felt that there was no way I was going to prison. It was such a small amount. It was first-time offence. Um, I had amazing references. I'd done so much charity work in my life. It was obviously recreational. I was so obviously not a, a drug dealer. But I instinctively, I don't know why, I just knew. And um, when the sentencing actually happened, at, the judge started by talking about three years. And at that point, I blanked out. And at that point, I blanked out. So when the hammer came down and I was just suddenly being taken on either side, to a holding cell under the courtroom, I had no idea what my sentence was. The last thing I'd heard was three years. That, at that point, it starts, a, a different kind of fear kicks in because it's it's complete unknown. And I think that's the thing about fear is, is when it's something that you have absolutely no, like now, if someone said I'm going to prison tomorrow, I'm actually not afraid of that. I'm afraid mm. of a, losing a sibling. I'm afraid of losing a child. You know, we all have different fears, but I'm absolutely not afraid of going to prison. Um, even though it's horrific, I've experienced. So, you know, it's it's familiar. And I think we're afraid of things that aren't familiar or that we have no control over. and We have no, you know, um, no way to prepare ourselves. And um, so, it, you, you, you know, it was uh, it, I was sick with fear. No way to describe it when you're put on a prison bus and taken to a, 
a jail. It's so surreal. What was it like? What can you sort of ex- describe well, the experience you know, itself? Like because, because of who I was and because I was on the news, <laughs> I um, I went to three different jails. And um, that's a whole other story. But the first one was a mixed prison. You didn't see the men, you heard them, and you ate their disgusting foods. So you didn't didn't eat, basically. And um, some girls had rallied together. They knew I was coming, and they'd planned a bit of a not very nice welcoming party with a, a shringe pack full of heroin. So they, luckily they got caught, moved to the hospital wing. So a riot broke out when I entered the jail. And um, a day later, I was in a workshop hammering little bolts into wood and I got just suddenly handcuffed and taken out. Um, I found out since for my own protection and then I was on a, now I was on a bus going to another place. Uh, So the first one was in Manchester, it was called Grizzly, we called it Grizzly. And then I was taken to Drake Hall, which is an open jail in Staffordshire. The trouble with that is it's an old army barracks and the uh, officers, they go off the house for two hours every evening. So as soon as they left for their two hours, I had 12 girls at my door with pool balls in a sock and they're about to give it to me. And that's that's where um, not only does an incredible amount of fear kick in, but for some reason, I really believe that if you're open to it, I don't believe in like angels, like the women with wings hovering above us all but I do believe that if you call to the universe you will find a strength and a courage from completely inexplainably from beyond that copes in extreme situations to save your own ass. and all I can say is that when that occurred um, I literally peed myself but out of my mouth came this like roar of strength and the, the fact that you know because they were all like you know judges daughters like my father puts you know pedophiles in prison motherfuckers you know it's like I became this person that I mean I'm 21 and these are all women in their 30s and 40s and 50s and you know these aren't I'm I'm a baby I'm the baby in the prison and um, I somehow impressed upon them that I actually lived a relatively very normal life and that you know my dad's from Clenetley I mean it's not like he's from you know he was an old school Thai lawyer network. We weren't wealthy people. And it, it was just something, some strength from beyond came out to protect me in moments like that. And, th- and there were a few of those occasions um, over that first six weeks in open prison. It was terrifying. I mean, you know, you'd wake up and there's some girl rummaging through your drawer, stealing your stuff. Anyway, eventually another press scandal happened. And I ended up getting shipped out uh, to uh, the third jail, which was the real hardcore one, which was uh, Newhall in Wakefield. Um, so I was right in the north of England, the very north of England. Of course, all my relatives and friends and my boyfriend were down in London or in, in Wales. And so now I'm in Wakefield, and this really is like a hardcore lockup. So my wing was lifers or long-term inmates, all done very serious crimes. Um, I was given a choice. I could go Rule 43, which is uh, solitary confinement for the rest of my sentence, which at that point was nearly three months left, or face the crowds. And um, I decided to face the crowds. And there was a farm, a prison farm, and I applied to go on the prison farm. So for two weeks, I did stay in a cell for two whole weeks. I think there was a week I didn't leave my cell and another week where I started leaving my cell. Um, and then I got on the farm, and that changed my that changed my whole life, uh, that prison because working on a farm with animals in the cold of the winter, this is October, November now, was actually quite liberating. And 
I was surrounded by women who'd had the most horrific life experiences and there was I, someone who'd known love and support and encouragement. I'd been blessed. I hadn't been sexually abused. I hadn't I hadn't been physically abused as a child. I, I'd always had, like I say, encouragement. And, and every single woman in prison with me had gone through some of the most horrific life experiences. So I started writing legal letters for women. I started writing a lot of poetry for women, for their loved ones. And then there was a, a, a talent competition. And a lot of the girls on the farm asked if I would write a rap. And um, and so we, we, we wrote this farm rap and they made me perform it with them. A uh, bunch of yardy girls, and we won this prison talent competition, and that was like such a huge thing for these women to win something, to achieve something, to perform. And for me, what was amazing is my poetry that had always been there, I'd always recited poetry. Um, I learned to rap. A bunch of girls from Answorth and with gold teeth taught me to to be a rapper. And years later, I actually became a rapper in a rock band, which is how I got to LA, in the, in, which is later on in the story. Um, so yeah, very strange. I also, um, in terms of freedom hunters, um, circling it back, it was while I was in jail that I started uh, studying all all of the things I hadn't been allowed to study at, um, when I was at Oxford, which was because um, it was so academic and so intense amount the amount of uh, work you have to do when, when you're there. I really, you know, I lost the poetry, I lost the reading around the subject. So. It was actually my time in jail that allowed me to study all of the different religious traditions and start meditating. And um, I had a picture on my wall. My aunt at the time was chair of Oxfam and, and she was in, in Lake Titicaca. And I had this postcard of Lake Titicaca on my wall and I would just stare at this beautiful lake. So I think it's the highest navigable lake in the world. And I was like, I'm going to go there. I'm going to be there. I'm going to be there within two years. You know, it started becoming a stronger and stronger vision. And yeah, that's uh, that's indeed where I ended up within two years. Uh, I went to work for Greenpeace in Chile and, and went and did South America for a year. So jail was enormously liberating. Uh, working with pigs on a pig farm. Yeah, I think I had some of my most profound, I would say, spiritual experiences in my lowest moments of life. When you look back now with hindsight, can you see how it changed you as a person yeah absolutely i i can't and i i mean this with my hands on my heart i cannot imagine i would never have had such a, a rich fulfilling life as i have had if i had not gone to jail i would have probably been a coke snorting media lawyer spending 110 percent of my salary stressed you know, maybe fulfilled in some kind of material way, materialistic way. But what prison did for me is made me appreciate and feel grateful for things that are so little, like, you know, the mist rising across the field and the bunny rabbits jumping around would literally fill me with light. Stupid little things that are they're available for everybody to appreciate. It taught me gratitude. And it made me realise that however low you go, yeah, there's always lower. Because I remember thinking, when it rains, you know, they say when it rains, it pours. I mean, there were moments where I was like, this, this couldn't get any worse. This just couldn't get any worse. And it would. And then there would be, and also, you know, you're surrounded by a lot of women that are, you know, have very strange tempers. And so you never knew who was going to kick off next. You never knew what fight was going to happen. I mean, we talk, I was just very lucky. Um, that I, somehow in, in the moments when I was the 
the potential victim of terrible things that something or someone would protect me in those moments and and I can't explain that other than grace really I can't but um no it's definitely it's definitely um served my life for sure no regrets on that I do it all over again I do double the time I did fear is a is a terribly ugly horrible horrific crippling thing but um you know, there were periods of time in there once I settled in that, you know, you get into a routine. Humans are incredibly strange creatures. You know, once you get into a routine, you know, I get addicted to my five cigarettes a day, my cheeky sneaker bar at the end of a certain day, my cups of tea breaks. You know, you start getting you start getting on a different schedule and then you get addicted to that. And when that gets broken, fear kicks in again. It's very strange. Mm. For the moment, there were periods of time I was okay. Do you think it's made you more fearless as a result oh yeah yeah because I should have learned my lesson after that and then I went to South America for a year India for a year Africa for a year Asia probably nearly a year in total and um you know I put myself in some really risky situations traveling over the years (laughs) and I'm like what what was I thinking but I probably became a little uh, you know after that I probably was a lot a lot more fearless than Maybe it was sensible to be, you know, especially in South America in 1995 when mm. Escobar's just been shot. You know, I was in Colombia when the Cali cartel, were, you know, the bombs were all going off and, and I'm running around Bogota at two o'clock in the morning, you know, <laughs> having fun. And um, and I don't know what I was thinking, you know, and traveling late at night on buses where you knew there was guerrilla activity. I mean, I, I look back now and I'm like, if I, it terrifies me thinking that I have children that they might be traveling because I think about the places I've been and the things I've done since and and I'm like oh my god but but what a wealth of life experience I've had as a result of being a little bit fearless yeah so what did you decide to do then when you got out it sounds like you went traveling for a while yeah so I went up in front of the law society more to clear my name as a a bit of a bone to my father for having put him in an awkward situation um, and that was worse interrogation than being in court, actually, because when I was actually sent- sentenced, the prosecution actually spoke almost like my defense. They, they explained that I was nothing to do with these uh, this acid charges and this death. And um, they actually, you know, it was really a class B drug that 10 people had chipped in for and they were still students and I wasn't going to give their names up. But, you know, when when it came to um, going up in front of the Law Society in London to see if I would still qualify to be able to practice law, they were taking their information about me from the tabloids. They had top of them around a table. There were psychologists and lawyers. And it was like it it was a joke. So I actually walked out in the middle of the the, uh, interview. I just felt I just felt so shocked by their myopic view of they weren't you know actually listening to the fact that this is someone who got a top degree in law and also has seen the other side and you know really does understand uh why prisons are not a place for rehabilitation and you know so i pleaded my case i was like if you can't see that i'd make make a good lawyer then you know god bless you and i left and it turned out that um, two days later i found out they thought i was exceptional and that i could be a solicitor perhaps being a solicitor that point, I'd already decided I was going to South America. So I decided to take a year out. Um, so I worked like waitress jobs for a year. I worked my ass off for a year, three different jobs, 
saved up and then I went to South America for a year and that completely changed my life in what way freedom hunters (laughs) (laughs) you know what that is a great title for my year in South America freedom hunters because no cell phones no television I landed in a country I didn't know the language a lot of fear actually when I arrived in Caracas it was very scary place actually that's the next time I felt abject fear was in Caracas you've got you know a year's worth of travel checks strapped to your body you're 22 years old and you're surrounded by crooks at a bus station and you can't even say Don Diaz de la Casa de Pepe (laughs) it's like that's the only thing I could say where is the house of Pepe and it's not even you know like what um and so I remember going, oh, my God, we've got to learn Spanish. My boyfriend and I were together at this point. And, and, um, and why it was an amazing year is because suddenly you're in a country, well, a continent, that is absolutely stunningly beautiful, impoverished. So people have very little, and yet they have a joie de vivre and a, and a gratitude you do not see in the Western world where people are popping pills for depression and this and that. And, and you start, you start, it blew my mind to be, uh, see a different culture, to get out of Europe, to just breathe and feel a different reality. And, um, and, and again, an appreciation for what I'd been born with. Um, and there I was riding on the back of chili trucks under the infinite stars at night in the Andes and, um, you know, camping on remote beaches in Colombia that there's no one there. I mean, it was just, and the, except for the Kogi Indians who, you know, preserving the ancient wisdom of the great ones, you know, and I'd sit with tribal people and meet masters in the middle of the jungle. And, you know, it was just a year of, um, I was 23 years old. And um, now I suddenly was experiencing a completely different world opening up. And after that, there was absolutely no way I was going to be a lawyer. I just knew I had to keep traveling. At that point, were you thinking about career or what you were going to do when you <laughs> returned? Or were you, did you just think, I'm not even going to return? I'm just going to keep yeah, moving so like I, this. I did. I, I started, I wrote, I've always written a lot. So going back to the writing, even in, in prison, I did a lot of writing. Um, but I did, I, I wrote, I believe I got a couple of articles published after I came back from South America. Um, but I writing journalism was definitely a passion I worked for Greenpeace in Santiago for, for for a heartbeat until I decided I wanted to go and see Guatemala and Mexico and and uh and so I, I carried on traveling for that year but when I got back I decided not to move back to London I decided to go to Brighton and that was when I yeah consciously wanted to be paid to write and I remember thinking at the time well how am I going to get make a career when I don't have you know background in journalism um, but I did. I started writing articles. I got a couple of articles published in different different magazines. But I begged this guy. Um, I met some guy. I always say, create your own opportunity. So you've got to convince people that you can do something that's going to make whatever they've got going on even better. And I do remember meeting this guy who was the editor of Brighton's paper, New Insight. I'm trying to think of his name. But I said to him, I would like to do celebrity interviews for the paper. And he said, well, who do you want to interview? And I'd just come back from Glastonbury. I'd been working for Greenpeace at Glastonbury, you know, doing those, you know, you sign up and pay three pounds a month or whatever. And he said, who do you want to interview? And I said, well, I just saw Faithless uh, perform at at the show and I think they've got a really good vibe. I want to interview Faithless. 
And he said, oh, my God, I went to school with Jamie Cato, who is one of the lead singers in Faithless, who's now uh, just actually directed the uh, Ram Dass film. So he said, well, I can fix that interview up. So off I went to London with my recorder. And um, and that was the first interview I did. And Jamie loved the interview so much. He was uh, very supportive. And I did Annie Nightingale and I did a DJ called Adam Freeland. And that got me, you know, writing articles and um and at the same time, I then monetized my charity work. So I started working for a company where um, they paid me to raise money for Amnesty International. Amnesty International and Greenpeace mainly. Um, I did a lot of campaign fundraising for. Um, and since I was 17, I'd always fundraised for Survival International, which is protects indigenous people's rights. I've always been obsessed with uh, tribal cultures, uh, which is also a reason South America was such a strong, you know, the Amazon culture was such a strong heart tug for me um so yeah so that then i'm in brighton and i'm writing and i started writing books i I wrote three novels before i was 25 i never did anything with them but the actual muscle was you know flexed every single day so i had an early mac laptop and i just always was writing always if i wasn't working for my paid job i was writing and if i wasn't wasn't writing and being paid with the charity work I was traveling for three months to like the Middle East or I go to you know I go to Egypt and Israel and just do a three-month tour and come back and work and save up and go away again and that happened for many years I I would uh, I would work save up every penny jump on a plane and go to the next destination and then what happened so after all that part of your life then what happened career-wise so my sister, Chloe, and I ended up going to India. Um, this is 1998. While we, we just arrived, I think it was towards the Christmas of 98, we um, were down south in Varkala, beautiful little beach down the south of India, and I bumped into an Aussie guy. Cut to six months later, we've missed our flight home. We've decided to stay in India longer. So I'm in the jungle um, near Rishikesh, um, and I heard a rumor that the Beastie Boys were were coming to India to perform for someone called His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And I didn't know who the Dalai Lama was at that point, but I doubt I knew who the Beastie Boys were because I'd learned to rap in jail, and they were like my... When I used to write poetry, the Beasties were like, you know, they were my jam. So off I went. I got on a bus. I told Chloe, you've got to come with me. We got on a bus for 17 hours, and suddenly we got to the foothills of the Himalayas. I'm suddenly introduced to Tibetan culture. I mean, it's like all of the Tibetan refugees swarming the streets, and I'm seeing all of these monks and nuns and learning about their torture and their pain and their hardship and what's going on with Tibet. And it was like my eyes banging open about another whole culture I had no context for I had no knowledge of 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 what they'd gone through you know um and so we ended up staying there for two and a half months and while I was on the rooftop watching the Beastie Boys perform for the Dalai Lama I turn around and this and I see this Aussie guy that I'd met six months earlier on a beach you know in the south of India so he was a sound guy from Australia who'd worked in news for, for many years um, quite successfully and then had gone to cover the, the, the handover in Hong Kong. 
I, rem I remember him telling me that while he was in Thailand, some friends of his had been shooting this show for the Travel Channel and that he'd helped out on it. And I, I said to him, oh, that's all I want to do now. I, wa I want to work in travel television. Anyway, we ended up going up to the foothills of the Himalayas and, and going camping for like three nights. Turned out we had the same birthday. We became best friends. We were like brother and sister. And at the end of um, our trip in India, he actually came back to Britain with my sister and I. And I was meditating one morning. And I just saw African planes. And um, I called him up. I said, you need to come over to the house. And he turned up and I said, listen, you need to call your friends in Australia, the ones who do the show for the Travel Channel. And he said, why? And I said, because I need to go to Zanzibar. <laughs> <laughs> and he goes, he goes, what? I go, go and find out if there's another season of that show. Because I, it was so strong. When I saw the plains of Africa, I also knew I'm going to be paid to go there. And I'd also made a decision in India when I when I kind of meditated up in the hills in India. I was like, I want to be paid to travel. It was a very strong invocation. I put it out to the universe. I was like, I want to be paid to travel now. I don't want to be going back and doing, you know, odd jobs here and there. Anyway, he went away and he came back that night and he looked white as a sheep and he said, you're a fucking witch. And I said, why? He said, well, because they've got season the next season's going on they've got a team going to cover the the, the uh, carnival in brazil they've got a team going to canada and they need a, a team of two to go to uh, east africa and i went great i'll write the proposal so i wrote a proposal that night i i got the lonely planet book for east africa in like a heartbeat and i must have written nine episodes we're doing a hot air balloon over the serengeti we're going to go and see the gorillas in uganda you know like i did the whole thing and because I was British, I guess they must have just thought I was some BBC chick or something. But overnight, I became a producer for the Travel Channel. And it was not even three months after that that I was suddenly uh, in Africa. Oh, that's amazing. And yeah. So what did you do with the travel show? Did you present it as well or did you go along as producer and... We, we, so we were two producers. He was a cameraman. He did camera and sound. So this is, you know, early days of before it all got very technical. So it was very simple um, shooting. Um, and, yeah, we'd find backpackers. So say I met you, I'd say, hey, Suzanne, you want to go for a four-day trek to Nagorogoro Crater and see the white rhino? And you go, yeah, shit, man. And we're paying. You know, the, the company's paying. So we'd follow you and you'd present that episode so usually what would happen is we'd shoot 10 minute segments that would go in a half an hour episode with an excerpt from south america an excerpt from canada it was called Earthwalkers. but sometimes if the episode was very rich um and in you know really detailed then it would be a half an hour episode so before i get to the presenting because there's a bit of a tragic tale to how i became a presenter we did some incredible shooting. I mean, I shot a lot of wildlife. I filmed lions making love very close up with no one else around, lion cubs. I've actually been on a motorbike through Queen Elizabeth National Park and stood right by herds of elephants. I mean, where they're like right next to me and, and also filmed the gorillas in Uganda very close up. I would often be holding a boom with tears rolling down my face. And just the beauty, again, of the African people, I mean, Africa gets under your skin. It's somewhere that you can't, anyone who's been knows exactly what I'm talking about. It's extraordinary. What happened in Uganda was when we went to film, the day we were supposed to film the gorillas, uh, we were in Zanzibar. 
and it was awful. The Buindi disaster happened. You can Google it. It was a devastating disaster where a bunch of tourists were marched out of their hostel in Buindi National Park, and um, they were taken up into the jungle by gorillas with guns. Because it's you, you write on the pocket of Rwanda, Congo, and and Uganda, and you know half of them were slaughtered to death. It was awful. Our camera had broken in Zanzibar, so we were forced to stay longer, or we would have been there. So when we finally got to Uganda, the country was in absolute despair. The tourist industry was absolutely screwed because this had been a horrific thing. And so we said, okay, well we're going to we're still going to do it. We're going to we're going to do this. And we spent two and a half months in Uganda. It was my favorite country. My, it's probably my favorite country in the world for so many different reasons. It's lush. Literally, the word lush is, is describes Uganda. And, um, and while there, there were no tourists. So I couldn't, I couldn't have tour, you know, backpackers present the episodes. So, so there's one where I'm, I present a half hour episode on, uh, on the river Nile. We went to the source of the Nile, which is in Uganda. Not everyone knows that in a place called Ginger. And, um, so we went, White water raft, white rapids. It's it's uh, class five rapids. It's crazy. You get literally thrown into washing machines in this in this water. It's crazy dangerous. Adrenaline fuels, nut nut stuff. But yeah, I presented a half hour episode on water rafting, and then I presented an episode in Queen Elizabeth National Park. Another one in Burundi, where we went and filmed the chimpanzees in the wild. Um, dangerous animals. They throw their shit at you. They, they pissed on our camera equipment. They threw shit at us. Um, yeah, that was an experience. Um, but yeah, no, the, the, it was it was crazy. I had to present an episode with pygmies on the Congolese border. Um, so yeah, I started presenting completely by accident, completely because there was no, there weren't enough yeah. to interview. Yeah. After this experience, which just sounds amazing, what next? Sorry, after Africa. I came back and I ended up, a relationship ended that I was in in Brighton and I ended up using some money. We'd, we'd bought a little flat together and I, I used the money to buy a camera equipment and uh, myself and a, a girl that I'd met in the Bolivian jungle in 1995, we'd made a pact that if we were both single and if we both had the means that we would, for the millennium, we would go to Mount Kailash. We decided to go and shoot our own travel show called Free Range Chicks, which sounds like a porn site. It probably is now. <laughs> and it was, it was uh, in quotations, a happening as it happens spiritual travel comedy. And uh, we decided to go and we spent a year in India, Nepal and Tibet. Oh, and uh, oh. we went and did our own thing. And um, at the time, we were kind of in a loose conversation with channel four in the end they didn't go for it It was a little racy for its time i'm going to be honest this was just pre ali g (laughs) so um but and it was quite wild we did things like you know we dress up in saris with big huge bindis and um we'd smoke those what are they called the indian cigarettes though but we we get the massive ones that look like giant reefers and we'd go and get fake toy guns and hold sadhus up on the on the river ganges and they'd all be game they'd all be part of it but then you know, the police would think there are two women running around with guns and then we'd get in rickshaws and have, like, escapes. And this was all caught on camera, crazy stuff. But a nice little story about free-range chicks was when we first arrived, um, my partner, Peter, she was she, she was the girl I was making the show with, 
she had gone to see a Tibetan monk in the Himalayas before I'd flown out to meet her. And she, she, she'd gone to see him for some healing. And um, he gave her a package that he wanted her to deliver to his brother in a place called Sarnath. She met him in the very north of India. She was actually with my sister. And when they came to meet me in Varanasi, um, we had this package. That's where we started our show. So we got the package. We're going to go on a rickshaw, find Sarnath. And it turned out it was at the Tibetan Institute of Higher Tibetan Studies. And it's where Buddha turned the wheel of law. And we turn up to this Tibetan Institute and we go looking for this guy and we find his mother instead. And she's just very old, like a 90 year old Tibetan woman. And she said, no, you, she was trying to explain through an interpreter to come back the next day that her, that her son would be there to receive this package. We didn't even know what was in it. It could have been anything. It could have been I was going to say, what trust. was in the package? It was sage. It oh, was God. sage. <laughs> but you know what's crazy is we came back the next day. What are the chances? This guy was the Dalai Lama's translator. The no, Dalai Lama no. was arriving a week later for an interreligious conference with all the religious leaders of the world, and we were invited to film it. Oh, my God. So I ended up spending two weeks living in the house with the Dalai Lama's translator, and I sat at His Holiness's feet with my camera during that whole religious conference, and it was just phenomenal, you know, what to say. And again, talking about freedom hunting, this is an example of like when you put yourself in extraordinary situations where you don't have any expectations that lead to any disappointment, amazing opportunities occur that you wouldn't have ever been able to anticipate, you know. And a lot of the time, I would say, out of the crises in life have come the landing in the perfect place. You know, they, you know, you always when you're in a crisis situation, you always think, it's so horrific and you're in it and you feel terrible. And if you actually look at it as going, oh, well, this is just rerouting my opportunity, then the whole of life can be looked at in a completely different way. And, Absolutely. Uh, so anyway, we were there for a year. Um, I came back. I learned to video edit. So it taught me video editing. I ended up in a new relationship with someone who was a phenomenal musician. And around the same time, my brother had left um, his job in a bank in London. He was laying down some tunes on, on an early G4 and asked me if I wanted to lay some of my poetry rap, whatever you want to call it, down. We started a band and all of that rapping I learned in prison came back and I ended up being in a band that then took me for the next five years. Uh, you know, we played Glastonbury, we played South by Southwest, we took us to Los Angeles, which is how I ended up moving to LA. I guess I became a rapper in a rock band. Amazing. So what? So then, okay. So with the uh, music, was that something you'd always wanted to do, or was it just something that just came up and it was through your writing and rapping that you got into it? Yeah, well, so when I was a kid, going back to the childhood stuff, my other sister, uh, a, a very, very um, established singer called Jem, J-E-M, she and I had a little band called The Runaways, When we, even though there'd been a very famous band called The Runaways we had no idea about, because of course we thought we were so original at nine years old. Um, we had a band, and we had an early keyboard, and we used to just write songs and sing them. And no, I'd always, again, poetry, spoken word had always been a thing. I've always written poems for my friends' and family's birthdays that I perform. I've been rapping them. And so when my, and I always used to write, you know, words that were, mean, you know, for me, meaningful and um, prophetic. And so, you know, my brother just had this really good backing track. 
that I actually this fantastic guy who worked at our local pub in Belsize Park in London. He was um, a Zulu. He was from South Africa. Awesome guy. And he loved poetry. And I loved his accent. He had such a beautiful accent. He didn't have a South African accent. He had a Zulu accent. And a very, you know, it was just a beautiful, almost like patois-esque accent. And um, I said he was desperate to get, he really wanted to be in a band. And I said, come over and see if you want to lay down these lines. And his he ended up rapping our first track for our band, which was first called Weapons of Mass Belief, and then it became known as Weapons. He Then the three of us became a group. Um, our first shows were just us on a backing track in London. And then we met Tasha, who's, she was in a band called Hepburn that got signed to Sony when she was 18 or 19 years old. And they were like the first all-female band that actually could play their instruments. Um, and so she's had some success. She was an exceptional drummer. Um, we we were so lucky, and then we um, met our guitarist. Was actually worked in the other pub at the end of Belsize Park. They both were opposite ends of our street, and he was he was a Kiwi, phenomenal guitarist. And um, and then our bassist came later. Actually, studied at Oxford just a little bit after me. Um, and very soon, you know, we you know we were never a band that broke out like a household name or anything, but we definitely had our little moment. We were on XFM a lot. And we did some late night radio one, you know, we'd be played late night. We did a lot, a lot of um, gigs, you know, so we just toured a lot and it was fun. And then it eventually got us out to America. So we, uh, and Jem also my sister at that point, my brother had been writing a lot of music with her and she'd gone platinum at this point and was, uh, she'd had a song on Madonna's album and she'd been signed by Dave Matthews. So she was out in LA and we were sent out South by Southwest, and she was playing Coachella, which is a big music show that happens out in the desert outside of LA. So we were out there, and we were doing some shows in in um, in LA. And it just, I just knew I was standing on the street outside the Viper Rooms after a show, and I thought America was not somewhere I ever wanted to go because you've got to remember I spent all my twenties in, you know, the developing world in places where it just was. America to me sounded like the most plastic, fake, phony place on the planet, especially LA. Um, but while there, it just was clear to my heart that this was my home and my head saying, what are you on about? This is the most fake, phony, plastic place on the whole planet. It's degenerate. It's the movie business. It's horrible. And I remember turning to, to Tasha, the drummer, and saying, this, shit, this is my home. I'm going to live here. And um, it took a couple of years from that point. I think that was 2005, and I didn't move to L.A. till the end of 2007. But in that interim, I couldn't get it out of my head. There's and something I, about LA, I think, that people don't tell yeah. you about. Like you, you hear all the bad stuff about LA, but not the good stuff. And it's it's pretty awesome. I do. I love it too. Yeah, it's an amazing place. When they say it's a you know, city of angels, it, there, there's a there's a a magic about that city. That's yeah. I've had ten amazing years there. Um, wouldn't change a thing. It was, it was, uh, yeah, absolute, absolutely clear to my heart that I needed to be there for whatever reason. And also, at this point in my life, I'd stopped the writing. And contrary to, you know, my brother used to call me a social predator <laughs> because when we'd be on tour, you know, if I'm around people, I'm really extroverted and chatty, and um, by tendency, my energy is just always going out to everybody. It's all like, you know, whether we're on stage or off stage, um, very sociable personality. But actually what I liked doing, the other side of my life had been 
spending time in India and Africa and South America spending acute amounts of time in absolute silence. You know, I've done multiple 10-day silence retreats where you're eating one, two meals a day. I've fasted. I've done all kinds of weird spiritual exploration stuff. Um, that is really about, you know, being still and calm and quiet and, and challenging the fears that arise when there aren't any extraneous, you know, things from outside impacting you. And so I got to the point with the band where it was like, it, I just suddenly saw the trajectory of if I stay in this, it was almost like the law thing. That's where it's going to go. I'm just going to be touring 300, 300 days of the year. Uh, and I just craved being back in a place where I could listen to quiet folk music and just write that I had in Brighton during those years I was writing those novels. And at that point, I was living in Primrose Hill in a friend's place and some producer had lived there and there were loads of screenplays on the bookshelf. And I started studying screenplays. I was like, oh, my God, this is cool because I'd only ever thought of novel writing. Suddenly I'm reading screenplays, which is a completely different um, craft. I just loved it. And I started writing my first screenplay in 2006. And I wrote down on a piece of paper five directors I wanted to get my first screenplay to. And I ended up marrying one of them. <laughs> Seriously, is that how you met Jonathan? I met Jonathan by total accident, but I actually had written his name down on a piece of paper no. it, two, two years before I met him, yeah. That's insane. No lie, yeah. And I and I met the other directors on that list as well. I mean, I had contact with. Mm. In fact, one of them was, was a really big inspiration to me because I cold-called him Darren Aronofsky. Um, somehow I got my first screenplay to him. But I do remember that just one email from him was enough for me to go, I'm going to kick the towel in on the band and I'm going to pursue screenwriting. And that's so, all I needed was that encouragement. So at that point, is that when you moved over to LA? Yeah. The whole of 2007, we were still touring in Britain, but in between I'd go out to LA and I would stay for the whole three-month tourist visa, like literally down to the wire. And after the third time I came in and they were kind of questioning me at customs, I was like, oh, I'm gonna, I, there's no way I can come back here without doing this properly. By pure fluke, I met someone on Dave Stewart's tour bus. I ended up at the Viper Rooms one night and I ended up on Dave Stewart's tour bus sitting next to a guy who ran a movie company. And he, he, somehow he just, we just hit it off and he said, can I take you out for coffee tomorrow? And I said, sure. And we got chatting. And he said, um, what are you interested in? I said, I, I, I want to I wanna pursue screenwriting. I've started doing it, but I love reading scripts. I wouldn't mind working in, you know, in, in development. And they just started a movie company, him and a guy who used to be an exec at Disney and um, the ex-manager of No Doubt. And so I ended up heading up development at their company. So I had a job. So then I got a visa. So I had an O-1 visa. And um, so I legitimately came into the country as an alien of outstanding talent. And... Uh, <laughs> Got my visa for three years, and then I'd actually bought a car before I knew I was going to get my visa. That was ballsy. Yeah. And I drove this car into the Hollywood Hills. I didn't even know where I was driving. It was raining, which was weird. It was a January 2008, and I went, I'm going to find my home. And I drove up this little trail. Like I said, in the hills, I had no idea where I was. And I didn't realize I was in a place called Laurel Canyon, which is um, very famous for all the music that came out of the 60s. Yeah, it's yeah. Joni Mitchell, the birds, you know, the Beatles, they, they all had homes there, the doors. Um, and I ended up finding this beautiful studio flat 
And five doors away was the guy I ended up marrying. His dog sniffed my bum one day when I was doing Chagun on the hill. And <laughs> overlooking the Hollywood sign and, you know, the whole, I was actually meditating, but doing that weird Chagun position. And, um, and uh, that's how I met him. And that was, yeah, a year and a half, two years after I'd written his name down on a piece of paper. So there you go. There you go. You've got to write stuff down, everyone. That's that's what I'm getting out of this interview. Yeah, I yeah. think so. I think I think really be clear with your intention. Write things down, and never ever believe that age, gender, colour is a limitation. Never believe that you know that there's anything that's that's too impossible. I mean, obviously, like I couldn't be a supermodel today at my age. There's certain limitations within the Vision Quest. You know, <laughs> <laughs> and the board it's not like you could just you know suddenly be you know but 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 you can within within the realms of possibility as long as you work really hard towards a goal i think if you if if there's something you want to do and you work really really hard towards it and you have patience and faith and perseverance um there's a welsh saying dally vind it means keep going and that's definitely been my life motto and i and 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 also not to measure your success by the destination. That's yeah. a real big error to make. Massive error people make. It's not about the destination because there is no destination. There isn't. You just, death. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, really, that death is the only uh, destination. Actually, my husband wrote Final Destination too. It's a grim, a grim kind of horror film about that that, that stuff. But you you know. Mortality is the only guarantee. Mm. So as long as you know that, mm. that that is the only destination. You know, I think far too many people, whether it's their careers or their hobbies and their passions, they live for some some goal that's down the line rather than actually enjoy the process. Mm. And, you know, for me it was like, you know, traveling is, is a good example. And the Dalai Lama, when I was filming him in, in, in India that time, he actually said that it's 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 not the destination, it's the journey, and it was so crystal clear that that has been, you know, if there was any anything I could say was the secret of of happiness in my life, it's been. And and by the way, don't get me wrong, there's been horrifically difficult challenges in my life, horrific. But I'm talking about how you how you embrace just your your passion and your and your work. It's not it's not that. It's it's not it's not the goal. It's literally can you enjoy today this moment, no matter how much the world is pressing you to be, you know, frustrated, afraid, sorrowful, angry, whatever it, whatever the world is pressing you to be in any moment. Because there's always going to be shit thrown at you, no matter what side of the fence you sit on, no matter how rich or how poor, you are always going to face you know uh, challenges and obstacles and dilemma and stress. Um, so it's just how how do you use all of that to you know practice being loving in difficult moments because then you change that journey in that moment and the next moment and the next moment and that actually changes the destination. So tell me about some of the stuff you worked on in your ten years there. I was really lucky. The first um, script that we optioned for that company was actually um, a little kid who was a rapper. Which is how I got my visa, because I was able to get my visa based off the fact that I was a per, I was the right because you you know you have to prove that you're someone that can fulfil something that someone else's job can't do. So during that time with them, what what that gave me was a lot of skills in terms of 
reviewing screenplays. You know, I had I didn't go to film school like my husband. I didn't study film, and it is a, a very specific craft. There is no doubt about it. I have such admiration for for screenwriters. Screenplay isn't something that you can just knock out um, in a night. And usually, writing is rewriting. So it's 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 an incredible amount of. Um, hard work and in the beginning you think what you've written is absolutely brilliant and it's just absolutely awful and it I gave myself I said to myself when when I moved to LA I said I'm going to give myself three to five years um because that's to me how long it takes to build a business you know it took me three years to get an agent from that point where I got my first agent had a tv show I was developing with another writer I had two different writing partners um, but in terms of actually monetizing my work, yeah, it was once I'd left that company, it was a good, yeah, three years until I was being paid to write. And then a good five years, so I was being, you know, really paid to write. And then it's it's a tough business because so much of what I've written, I've been paid, but it hasn't been made into a movie or a television show. Mm. But I've been paid to write a lot of treatments and screenplays. And, um, that you know that I've written books uh ghost written books so some I can't talk about I've done so many different types of writing I can't tell you I've written the last thing that I wrote before I left LA to come here to Wales to shoot a movie um <laughs> was a it's a brilliant show it's actually out there right now it's got going out to the town with with the main producer but it's the guy who started um AVN the adult film news. It was uh, before the uh, Oscars for the porn industry came about. So he was he was a kind of geek in the eighties that started reviewing porn early porn films when they first started coming out on VHS on the top shelves of video stores. <laughs> and he was just, him and his friends. They were just geeks who had journalist degrees and wanted to write for a living and get to Hollywood. They were living in Philly, and um, and so it's a story. It's a really fun comedy. So. Um, we were hired, uh, myself and, and, and my husband were hired to write a, it kind of like a dramedy, like half hour scripted comedy. Mm. Before that, we were hired by a Chinese company to adapt um, a DC comic called The Fallen Angel. She's a female superheroine. So that's something that's set in Shanghai. It's a big film. You know, it's a big action blockbuster kind of film. Who knows? might end up holding up a wobbly table, that script might end up getting made. You just never know. And then I, over the years, I've also produced television. I've directed a bit of television. I started a company, production company, four years ago. And now I've started that production company here in the UK. So I'm speaking to you from Wales. Yeah, so you've moved back to Wales now from LA to, yeah, to run I, your production I, company there. Yeah, well, my, my, my husband had a dream many years ago, even though he's a New Yorker, his mum's from Britain, and he spent all his childhood summers in North Wales. And every year we've been coming back for our summer holidays, he's been looking at this incredible landscape. It's extraordinarily beautiful, and it's got some of the most stunning locations you could possibly imagine, like a wet dream for filming, but no infrastructure, because all the infrastructures moved down to Cardiff or London. So, you know, he's been talking about building a studio up here for years. I've kind of ignored it most of the time because I was so in love with L.A. But, you know, o- over the years coming here, I've got more and more attracted to the smell of my homeland. Um, and, you know, having more serious conversations with educationists up here about building out the film studio um, of one of the prominent universities up here. And seeing how we can actually build um, a proper big studio, as they did in Northern Ireland with uh, Titanic Studio, 
uh, studios, which, you know, become famous because of Game of Thrones. But mm. so that's the picture dream. So what we came here first is, well, let's shoot a bunch of, you know, uh, genre films here first, get our feet wet. Um, so you've caught us in the middle of a, we're, we're in the middle of a production called Suppression, which is a thriller starring Ewan Rian from Game of Thrones and Erin Richards from Gotham and Stephanie Leonidas, who's from Defiance and Lex Shrapnel, who's in Menachi. He's amazing. They're all amazing. They're fantastic. And, um, it's been really magical shooting in North Wales. When you look back at your career, because you've gone into different things at different times. Was there, is there any sort of common thread that you could look back and say, well, that was, that was the key to how I got from, you know, point A to point B to point C? Well, I'm just trying to think, what kind of advice would you share with people who get inspired by your story and have all these creative dreams? I get you. I, I know what you're saying and I have a really good answer for that because I think it's really important to remember that no matter where you are, wherever you are, if you are open to it, you are in relationship with everyone and everything in every moment. So if you don't presume any limitations, you will meet exactly who you need to meet at exactly the right time. And the example I give is never, ever be embarrassed to be in the service industry. I've cleaned toilets. I've looked after kids. I've done every waiting bar job you can possibly imagine. I've worked on a makeup counter in Boots. I was a masseuse in the early years of, um, you know, the band. One of my clients was a very big music agent. And years later, when I was in L.A. and I was now screenwriting, I was able to reach out to him and say, hey, I need your help. And he was the one who connected me um, and, and opened um, the doors to my first agent in Hollywood. So I would say never, ever downplay wherever you find yourself. If as long as you, this is the thing people get wrong. As long as you know what it is you want to do, stop worrying about how you're going to get there, and start just enjoying the creative process of doing the thing you love that you want to monetize. Because the best thing you can do, obviously, is monetize your passion. That's the dream for all of us. But by the way, that is a really hard graft. It is not easy. It's not everyone. Mm -hmm who can just become the famous actress and be paid to act. It happens to some, but not everybody. And I would say, you know, if you're going on the creative path in life, it's feast or famine. I've had no financial security in my life. And that for some people would be intolerable. But I've had a very rich life. And I have somehow, I don't know how, I have managed to live in some extraordinary circumstances and have some extraordinary life experiences from actually having very little. Be very clear about what your objective is. So for me, it's all, my objective has always been um, being happy and fulfilled and being kind and hopefully just expressing love and joy in my environment. And that has been reciprocated in kind. Now that's not to say that I haven't been screwed over, messed around, you know, met all the worst of humanity in the midst of life too, because I have. But if you just trust that whatever it is you want to achieve is achievable and you work really, really hard towards, so for me, it was always writing. I have written so much in my life and most of it will probably never see the light of day. But there are those things that have and they've been paid for 
and I've been rewarded. Like I said, I've never measured my success of what's apparently successful in, in the world terms. I've always measured it off, am I enjoying myself? And am I being a good mother, a good wife, a good friend? And, you know, can I go to sleep at night knowing I'm doing the best I possibly can for the people I'm in relationship with? Yeah, well, I think you've, you've just answered the question that I always ask all of my guests, which is what is success for you? So it sounds like, well, that's it. Yeah, yeah I, think, I, think, I think it's, it's, uh, it's absolutely got to be happiness. And, um, you know, I know a lot of very, very successful, in quotations, um, successful in, in, in terms of their career credentials, and successful in terms of um, uh, being very wealthy. And I know that for a lot of people, that is the dream. You know, that's the dream. You know, I know people who live in phenomenal homes and drive phenomenal cars and have had a silver spoon. In that. And, and I can tell everybody who's listening, and I know we all know this, we get told it was everyone's still so obsessed with celebrity culture and fame and fortune, but it is not what it's cracked up to be. Like I said, I'm not lying. The happiest people I have met in my life are those that have had relatively nothing. So do you ever wonder what would have happened had you not gone to prison back (laughs) in the early days? What what would you be doing now? It's really weird, isn't it? It's a really weird one. I guess it's hard to imagine doing anything else right now, right? Yeah, no, I cannot imagine my life without having been that place because I discovered a huge um, gratitude for life in my lowest moment, which was at that point, which was on my 22nd birthday. And that that has stayed with me for the rest of my life, just this gratitude. Um, if I hadn't gone to jail, probably, I mean, who's, who knows, probably would have been a lawyer probably would have got a little bored after a while. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> oh, only too familiar. <laughs> I mean, hello, uh, after what you just told me. And um, I think I would have ended up writing. I probably would have been in London. I would have had more money, for sure. <laughs> so I would have been able to probably take save up to take some time out to write a novel properly rather than scrambling it around waitress jobs, you know. But I wouldn't have seen the world, so I wouldn't have had the rich life experiences. And if I'd been a lawyer... I wouldn't have probably backpacked. I probably would have gone to hotels, which means I wouldn't have been subjected to the kinds of experiences I had doing it in a more rough and tumble way. I always immersed myself in whatever culture I was with. So I can't imagine if I'd gone the other way. Who knows? It's weird, isn't it? It's like mm. sliding this totally different trajectory. Who knows? But, uh, but I actually think that the life experiences you need will find you even if you run away to a cave. So it's not about the content, it's about how how it confronts you as a person emotionally. So I think if you've got a lot of anger, you'll be confronted, whether you're a lawyer, whether you're in prison, whether you're traveling to Thailand on a paradise beach, somehow experiences will find you to confront you, to, to transcend your anger or your fear or your sorrow or, you know, whatever is has got to be, whatever your pattern is. Georgia, thank you so much for sharing your story and your experience and wisdom and what you've learned. Uh, It's been truly amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much, Suzanne. Take care. 
Thank you for listening to Freedom Hunters. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you enjoyed it, please don't forget to rate, review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It will give the series a boost and help other people find it. And you can find out more about what I'm passionate about on my website, secondsister.com or Instagram at Suzanne Delahunty. Tune in on the first of every month when another inspiring guest will be sharing their story of how they found freedom in a career that they love. 